Hello and welcome to a special episode of the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm here today to introduce Seb Stafford-Bloor and Dom Fifield of The Athletic. Later on today, we're releasing our second episode of State of the Club. State of the Club is a video series where we look at one club per episode and diagnose them in several different ways. We look at their tactics, we look at their finances, we look at their recruitment, we look at the management and the coaching, and we try to analyse all of the most interesting themes related to that club. And today's club is Chelsea. Now, Chelsea are a fascinating club at the moment. The team once associated with uh, Roman Abramovich and and Jose Mourinho has ushered in a new era where we're more regularly hearing names like Marina Gravskaya and obviously Frank Lampard has returned to be the coach. What you're about to hear on today's podcast is the extended and full version of a conversation between Seb Stafford-Bloor and Dom Fifield. Seb and Dom take us back to 2017. They talk about the money that was spent on uh, sacking Conte. They talk about the decision-making behind uh, Maurizio Sarri's appointment. And finally, they talk about Frank Lampard and his network at the top of the club and what the future might hold for him and for Chelsea. It's far-ranging and fascinating, and a shorter version of it appears in the video. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation, and I also hope that you will visit our YouTube channel. If you just search for TIFO Football on YouTube, you'll find us, and our most recent video will be this State of the Club episode. It'll be about an hour long, maybe, full of contributions from people like David Ornstein and Matt Slater. And they take us a really long time to make. So if you can show your support and give us a like and, uh, you know, go and watch it and give us a view, that'd be fantastic. And I should emphasise as well that it's not just for Chelsea fans. The idea behind making episodes like this is that we make them with a broad interest in mind so that fans of different clubs can enjoy watching an episode about a team that they don't support. So thank you for downloading today's podcast. And I'll leave you in the uh, the warm embrace and the cool, cool hands of Dom Fifield and, of course, Seb Stafford-Bloor. Back to 2017, uh, the memory I'm left with from Chelsea's season is Bashawai celebrating at the Hawthorns, Conte rushing down the touchline, and Chelsea looking like a, a picture of health. They've been so mechanically good that season, and they look to be heading into the summer from such a position of strength. Where did it start to go wrong? Well, they, well that was the summer when it, it started to unravel. Um, my, weirdly, my memory is more of Diego Costa threatening to let off a fire extinguisher um, in a press huddle at the Hawthorns post-match um, when he wanted to get on with the celebrations. But in, in some ways, actually, that's that's part of it because he was such a volatile character. Even Antonio Conte struggled to, to deal with him over that summer. That was a summer of the infamous text message um, where, which he, Costa, implied um, was the manager forcing him out of the club. Um, it's also the summer where Conte, in preparation for a return to the Champions League, bear in mind that Chelsea had won the league having not been in Europe, um, he realised they needed greater strength and depth. They needed to spend a lot of money that summer to be competitive at that level and he wasn't the type of manager that was going to put up with a mediocre season in, in Champions League football. Uh, and he'd want to retain his his title as well. So th- that was the summer where he goes to the board and sort of asks them politely, probably not so politely, um, to sign Romelu Lukaku um, from Everton and to sign Virgil van Dijk. And both of those players ultimately 
don't arrive. Um, and the, the story goes that, that, that Conte, whilst on holiday that summer, is, is sort of receiving text messages and sending off, pinging off text messages to, to Marina Granovskaya and the recruitment department asking what's happening, are these players coming in, I want these players in, etc. And he's not getting the answers that he, he wants back. He's not getting the, the positives. Yeah, we're spending £150 million on, on two proper pedigree signings. And what they end up doing that summer is actually just papering it over, over a load of cracks just to flesh out their squad. And you get a, a rush of players who haven't really generally worked out. You're, you're Danny Drinkwaters, uh, David Zappacosta costs over £20 million. Pounds. Uh, Ross Barkley eventually comes in January, but they did try and bring him in with a knee injury over that summer. Um, so there's a bloated squad. Bakayoko is another one who comes in, um, who actually did actually arrive with a bit of pedigree from, from Monaco because he'd done so well in the Champions League the previous year. But it's a bloated squad. It's not necessarily a squad that's going to compete on two fronts to you know Premier League and Champions League. And I think that's probably where the, the relationship between... Conte and Granovskaya and the board starts to deteriorate quite markedly. Um, and as soon as results turn over the course of the following subsequent season, um, the writing's basically on the wall for, for Conte. He's, he's not the type of manager that, that will sit back and put up with what he perceives to be mediocrity. And he, I think he did think that the transfer business done was mediocre. Um, and of course, Chelsea don't put up with managers being that political so it was always going to go one way he seemingly wasn't afraid to let people know that he was dissatisfied either because i remember there was a marked difference between his press conference demeanor in year one which was 2016-17 when a lot of people bought into his charisma he was he's an engaging person even though like antonio conte's english was a little bit pigeon to start with and it was a little bit broken he's a very enrapturing guy and uh someone that certainly has an aura around him year two there was that it wasn't indifference, wasn't sort of flippancy, but clearly, a, you know, a very different vibe from him. When did Chelsea make the decision that they were definitively going to move on from him? Or was that something that was driven by him in the first instance? I don't I can't pinpoint the exact moment, but if you look at the results in the beginning of the year in 2018, um, the game at Watford in particular stands out. I think they got hammered. Four, one possibly um, Bakayoko sent off very early on um, and and at that stage it just felt like a fait accompli I mean that that was him done we a few of us sort of veterans Chelsea veterans had had seen this happen before not least with Italian managers actually I mean in a very different style but Carlo Ancelotti really from maybe December of that of his second season Certainly in January, when he was enduring this difficult moment where they, the Chelsea just couldn't get a result, however well they played, um, he was a dead man walking for the last four months of that season, four or five months of that season. And, I, and it felt the same with Conte, but f for very political reasons. That You're right, his demeanour did change in the press conferences. He, he had a lot more edge to him. And those those eyes were smouldering throughout that season. Um and he, he wasn't afraid to, to put the boot in publicly, which again rubs Chelsea up the wrong way. And he was almost challenging the ball to get rid of him, um, whilst probably being quite clever and shrewd about how he was delivering it, because I think it would have I mean, that he left them open to, to legal action if they had sort of swung the axe earlier. Let's pick up on that legal action bit, because obviously when he leaves, 
the club enter into this long, fractious period with his payoff in relation to his payoff. Um, two questions there, really. Like the first is, why was that so complicated and protracted? Um, and also, how much organisational energy did it sap? Because it seemed like at the time, for a period of months, you couldn't have a conversation about Chelsea's hierarchy without it getting mentioned as a subplot within, you know, within in relation to whatever else they were trying to do, team building, anything else. You look at the ultimate cost, it was £26.6 million is what they paid to get rid of Antonio Conte and his staff. It's an astonishing amount of money. They eclipsed the, the amount they paid to, to Mourinho first time around, which I think was around £18 million. And at the time we all balked at that. It was a staggering fee. Um, there, were, there were two, as far as I understand, there were two sort of uh, legal channels which he was pursuing. One for unfair dismissal and, and one basically to get the last year of his contract paid up. Um, Chelsea had this, they sort of learned from the Di Matteo fiasco where, where when Di Matteo was sacked in the, actually in the, later in the year after he'd won the, the Champions League with Chelsea in 2012, at the start of the next season he gets sacked and he sat out the year um, before getting the Schalke job and Chelsea effectively paid his, him on gardening leave to, until his contract expired, um, which it hurt them. It stung them. I mean, it's a, that's a big financial outlay. So they, they wanted to avoid that. So basically, if, if Conte had got another job um, in immediately after leaving Chelsea, then Chelsea's severance package would have stopped at that point. But he just sat it out. He sat out the entire year and then joined into as soon as the last payment in his of his original Chelsea contract was made. Um, so it, yeah, it, it, it hurt Chelsea financially. And even even a club like Chelsea that we, we think of having you know, um, bottomless pockets and Abramovich's vast funding behind, they, they can't afford things like that. And that, that is a football cost that goes down in your, in, in FFP and stuff like that. And, and they, they need to avoid situations like that happening in the future. And I think it probably did shape how they appointed managers in the subsequent years. In 2018, and probably for about a year, 18 months beforehand, Maurizio Sarri has risen to become <clears throat> the apple of the continent's eye. He's the, he's the high priest of technical football. And this is who Chelsea are light onto. Right? This, is, this is who they see as Antonio Conte's natural successor. But why is that? Because they've just had this incredibly volatile period in their history. Right? It's costing them an absolute fortune or it's about to cost them an absolute fortune. And Sarri, for all his virtues, is unproven in the Chelsea sense. He's never won anything at that point. Um, and he's also someone who has been a little bit volatile in the past. Well, how did that decision get made? Looking back, I have no idea. And when I benefit of hindsight, it's a staggering decision. Um, it feels like I've, I've gone with the, the fellow that was Alamode at the time. And he's, you know, the, the bloke who's who's just done so well and dazzled at, at, at Napoli in the hope that they're, they're appointing the equivalent of, you know, Benitez from his time at Valencia. Um, <laughs> Sarri is a, an, an idealist almost in the way he, he gets his, his football teams to play, but, but it's, it's the style of the play that is paramount, not whether they go and win things necessarily. And he probably would object to that, but that is the reality of, of, of how his career had panned out. Um, and on the one hand, that would have appealed to Abramovich and, and Granovskaya because Abramovich has always craved watching a sort of Guardiola-style 
pizzazz to, to his team uh, playing with a bit of panache. And he's not always had that. They've had success, but they've not always had that sort of swashbuckling style to them. Maybe a bit under Ancelotti, you could argue, certainly in the first season. Um, so if he's pursuing that, then there's a logic to going with Surrey. But but Surrey's never been successful to, to the level that Chelsea expects their managers to be successful. So it was a massive, massive risk. And ultimately, it was a risk that, that didn't pay off. It just, it, the fit was wrong, really from the outset, I mean, really from the outset. One of the things that confused me at the time and, and probably still does now is that when you bring someone like that in, you have to nourish their ideas with recruitment and you have to facilitate their strategy. You mentioned Benitez and Valencia and, and obviously when he, came to, when he came to Liverpool, there was a certain element of that in Liverpool's recruitment. Their, their recruiting bent around him in a way, not overly, but there were Spanish club players coming into the club. There were players who were suited to playing his style of football. With Sarri, I don't know. I mean, Jorginho comes in and would ultimately become a, a stick with which he was beaten for pretty much the duration of his time in the club. But did Chelsea become, did Ch Chelsea become any more aware at that time of, of needing to bend around their manager? Because obviously a lot of these themes are holdovers from Conte's time. You know, one of the, the, the great issues there, as you've told us, is that uh, the recruitment didn't live up to what he wanted. It didn't suit where he was trying to take the club. So did anything change during that period or was Sarri a, not a victim, but was his reign um, afflicted by that same issue? It's almost as if they sort of fucked him off by giving him Jorginho. Like a peace offering. Yeah, uh, he came in with him. I mean, he was part of the deal that actually brought him over effectively. You know what it reminds me of? It's like a, like a young boy being packed off to boarding school, but being allowed to take a soft toy with him. <laughs> you know, it's like, a, it's like a comfort blanket. Well, Jorginho has been called worse. So, um, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't think anything else did change. I, th I think the, the club was set in its ways in terms of recruitment. It was still sort of operating a one-in-one-out policy, really, for the biggest signings. It wasn't in a position where it, it could go and repeat the the lavish spending of Abramovich's first few years at the club. Um, so it was unrealistic what Chelsea were asking of Sarri. And, and we should acknowledge that when you look at the, how it all sort of didn't unravel, but it just never really took off properly under, under Sarri. Cause it's, it's, it is impossible for him to have really implemented what he wanted to do when he just didn't have the personnel to do it. Jorginho. Okay. He was, he was key to everything that, he, that happened at Napoli, but, but but you can't just have one player and do that, and then the different. other players weren't suited. It's also like it was it was a kind of a secrets out moment in, yeah. in the Premier League, where I think it was the game at Wembley, where um, I think uh, Pochettino stuck Deli Ali on him yeah. and hassled him, and all of Chelsea's rhythm sort of vanished from that game, and they got absolutely battered. I, I remember I remember covering the the game at, at Cardiff, um, which was a couple of months into it. Uh, there was um, already an atmosphere around him and it was actually uncomfortable to be there. Chelsea ended up winning. I, I think Cesar Azpilicueta scored a hilariously offside goal at the end, which nearly killed Neil Warnock. Um, but very clearly, there was, that was the point of no way of no return because the fans already decided that this, this wasn't going to work. And it was as hostile as I've seen an away set of fans um, towards their own manager around that time. And that was hostile. I was there as well and it was... It was grim for, for Sari, but I think actually worse was the atmosphere within Stamford Bridge. Uh, I think it was a Manchester United FA Cup tie with, well, that Chelsea lost. And that was the sort of first um, chorus of fuck Sari ball, that the, you know, that coming up from the Matthew Harden taken on by the shed. Um, 
Chelsea Chelsea supporters had voiced their disapproval at Benitez's appointment as an interim manager back in sort of late 2012. And the last five, six months of that season were, was edgy. Um, there were moments where, particularly in the, the first few games, I think they played City and Fulham very early on. Um, and the fans made very clear their disgust that this man had been appointed at their club, a legacy of his time at Liverpool. Um, it was worse with Sarri within the ground um, because this was a team that, that on the face of it weren't actually doing that badly. I mean, they were always up near the top of the division or relatively certainly near the Champions League places. Um, certainly if you compare it to some of the disaster seasons in oh. their past, like the kind of the, the Mourinho third season yeah. situation, like it's nothing, it was nothing like that. Right. It just was, it was stale and unconvincing, but they were still winning enough games to be credible yeah. as, a, as a side in the, in the division. Maybe they'd been sold the philosophy, this is going to be amazing. You're going to see the type of football we saw at, at Napoli last season. And, and the reality was it was just too slow paced for the Premier League. It just didn't, it didn't open teams up enough um, for Chelsea to, to run riot effectively. It was, it was just, the whole thing was stodgy. It was an ill, the whole fit was wrong. Um, Sari didn't look as if he wanted to be there. Uh, it became very clear that the, the fans didn't want him to be there. I think some of the players backed him, but then, you know, the subplots, you know, his reluctance to use Loftus-Cheek and Hudson-Odoi for a lot of that season. Ironically, they come in towards the end of the season and do brilliantly and actually probably enjoy their longest spell in the team at Chelsea that they've ever had as, as a pair. I mean, Loftus-Cheek over the course of that, that run-in was sensational. He was a better, he was a better player for, for Chelsea than Eden Hazard, arguably. Um, and then they both suffer their Achilles, respective Achilles injuries, and that's that's their little Chelsea purple patch over. But but the, everything was everything was building towards the summer. And again, we knew another Italian manager in place who who we knew wasn't going to be there the subs the following season. And you, you throw in things like the, the the FIFA transfer ban, which suddenly you've had a manager that's been acknowledging all season that for him to play the football that he wants to play he needs new players in and suddenly Chelsea aren't able to bring in new players for the next two transfer windows and you realise that this is never going to work it's it's not going to work he's not going to be able to reinvent this team and get these players to play the way that he wants them to play so we're never going to see Sari ball at Stamford Bridge We've got these players emerging so Loftus-Cheek you've mentioned Hudson-Odoi you've mentioned is this part of the reason why Frank Lampard appears as a blip on their radar? Like beyond the obvious, Frank Lampard exists in Chelsea's atmosphere and will do forever, naturally. Uh, but around that time, his Derby County are good. They're fine. They have this big blip in the middle of the season, this big sort of uh, collapse in their form and they recover eventually to lose a playoff final. There's nothing in his management of Derby at that point which suggests that he's anything other than potentially sometime in the future, maybe quite a capable manager. How does it happen that their interest becomes more than just the guy that used to play in our midfield to this is someone that we can entrust with what is ultimately a golden generation of future players? I think there are a few factors. The transfer ban is probably principal amongst them. This is a club that that realises that, that it's not going to be able to spend any money, significant money in the next two windows. Um, okay, Pulisic is already pre-signed. Kovacic has, has an agreement. They can make that deal permanent. So they're also the only club that's ever had a transfer ban and managed to spend 50, £100 million pounds effectively. But 
that said, they, they, it wasn't the time to instigate a revolution, to have a, a, another coach come in like Sari, who's going to want to play a particular way, that's going to require a particular type of player who's going to have to come in from the outside because we don't have them on site. Uh, Chelsea's academy has been producing brilliant, brilliant players for a long time. It's, it's been winning FA Cup Youth Cups every year for a generation, it feels like. I mean, it's, they, were, they are the elite of the elite. Uh, and they have a generation whom uh, Lampard knows well because he's had Mason Mount and Fikai Tamori with him at Derby. He's come up against Tammy Abraham at Villa that season. He's come up against Reese James at Wigan that season. So players that he's familiar with, he's got the ex-under-18s coach as his assistant at Derby in Jody Morris. Um, so if Chelsea are going to lean upon those players even if it's just to bulk up the squad. But, you know, I think most people recognise that there's so much talent in a Mount, in a, in a James, in, a, in an Abraham, that they're probably going to play a role in the first team. Then then who better is there to to oversee that development and that first in the first team than, than a man who's already familiar with them all and, and knows how the club works, knows about the academy, has, has been there and watched this academy spring up from from nowhere really and, and just establish itself at the at the top, top level. That was one of the main appeals, I think, to Lampard. This is also a club that needs healing. You've got Marina Granovsky reporting to Roman Abramovich in, in absentia after the whole visa furore um, and saying, look, we've got a fan base that's in open revolt here against the manager. We've, we've got schisms opening up everywhere. Um, it's not a happy place. Okay, we've won the Europa League. We're in the Champions League next season. It's quite an appealing job in terms of the level of football you're going to be playing, but you, you're also not going to be able to spend money, which probably, when you're looking for a replacement for Maurizio Sarri, rules out most elite coaches in Europe. So we might be in exceptional circumstances here. It might be the time to to bring someone in who will unite the fan base, who will heal all those rifts overnight, galvanise everybody. We'll have There'll be positivity in abundance. You know, a club icon, the leading scorer in the club's history, walks in the door and he's served a bit of an apprenticeship at, at Derby. He's had a year, okay, he hasn't gotten promoted, but he's done as well as any Derby manager in recent times has done. And he's obviously done it with a quite a young setup as well, and not least with a couple of Chelsea players thrown in. So it, that is why it fits. That's why it works. Um, it, you know, go back five years, there was absolutely no chance that Chelsea would have appointed a manager whether homegrown or not, or a club icon or not, who'd only had a year's experience under his belt in the championship, never competed at Champions League level, let alone Premier League level. But now, now actually it feels right because this club needs to mend and he's the man to do that. I also felt it was actually a little bit of a clever sleight of hand from Chelsea because you've got this nucleus of young players. Now, under normal circumstances, you know what the Premier League's like. You can't lose three games if you're a club like Chelsea. And if you're if you come into if you come into a club and your first game is sees you lose at Old Trafford like that, and your team is stocked full of developing players, I think if you're anyone other than Frank Lampard, you get an absolute pace thing, and that's almost a point of no, no return from the very beginning. So it felt to me, and I don't know if this was ever part of Chelsea's thinking, like it enables. Uh, at the very least, it enables the club to see what they've got. They've always been beaten around about 
what they're able to graduate from their academy. And they've always had this thing about, you know, because there's this sort of um, instant gratification culture at the club and this need to win now, that managers have never really had the opportunity to say, right, this midfield's yours, Mason Mount. This uh, forward line is yours to pivot, Tammy Abraham. Reese James, you're gonna, you're not just gonna come in for a, a game and a half and then get binned as soon as you make a mistake. We're gonna put you in the side and you can make mistakes and I'm still gonna pick you next week. Was that ever part of the thinking or is that just a, a happy consequence of, of the appointment? No, it definitely bought them time. It bought everybody time appointing him. But it goes back to the transfer embargo and the fact that these are exceptional circumstances. The other element, of course, is we haven't mentioned is Eden Hazard's leaving. So that their best player for the last seven years has, has gone to Real Madrid as well and can't be replaced directly. So, yeah, this is a means of buying time. And you can look at that defeat at Manchester United I actually think that, that was one of the, actually weirdly one of their better performances they were very good for half an hour in yeah, game. They, yeah. They, they, they did okay and, and, and ended up losing 4-0 but um, c'est la vie but it's, it's they, they he has that he, he basically could, he can do no wrong for, for a while we, we know that he's, he's not untouchable but but because of the circumstances around the club at the time because everybody realises that these are really difficult and actually finishing fourth might actually be a bit of an achievement. Um, Chelsea, again, in exceptional circumstances. You go back throughout Abramovich's time, that's never been the case before. Look at all the managers that have lost their jobs as soon as Champions League qualification is threatened. Um, I mean, high-caliber managers, Luis Felipe Scolari and Ancelotti and even Conte to a certain extent, all, all these guys and you know, a European cup-winning manager in Di Matteo who, who won it a few months before. He gets binned off because it looks as if Chelsea might not finish in the top four. Well, Lampard comes in and it's almost like, yeah, you finish in the top four, that's brilliant. Thank you. Whereas every other manager that's ever been appointed by Abramovich is, you know, finishing the top four, that's, that's the bare minimum. And then we'd like you to be competing for the Premier League title as well, if not Europe. So it, it was just exceptional circumstances and it... They were very fortunate that Lampard had even had a year's management under his belt in many ways because that allowed them to go and to go and pursue him um, to take over. Okay, so these were exceptional circumstances and to a certain extent, football is still feeling the effects of the pandemic and will do for some time. But Chelsea have almost reverted to something like their norm of maybe about a decade ago. They spent over £200 million across the summer and that... So just because of their past, that sets off organ music because that changes the context in which he's managing. Is that true? Is it still a, a case of he has a protected status within the club or is this is this the beginning of, of him becoming what we recognise as being a Chelsea manager in inverted commas? I think, I think the latter. It's quite telling that when, when Lampard was sort of making those phone calls to... Timo Werner to Kai Havertz, even to Hakim Ziyech back at the beginning of the year to persuade those guys to join Chelsea. He was talking about a three-year plan of progression towards becoming proper contenders. Now, I think that this is year one of that three-year plan. I don't think last year, last year was year zero. Um, it was get through that and look, they did well to finish in the top four. Um, that, you know, I suppose you could argue that other teams fell away a bit and Spurs' issues, etc. So there was an opportunity there which they took. Um, but but this is the start, as you say, of of Lampard 
experiencing some of the pressures that his predecessors endured. Uh, he has to demonstrate progress. And I think now Champions League qualification is the bare minimum for him. That that old policy that, that has really been in place throughout Abramovich's ownership, yeah, that applies now. You, you've got to finish in the top top four and get Champions League football for next season to guarantee the revenue streams in a in you know in a market that even Chelsea, are, you know, a couple of years time they could be feeling it, feeling the pinch still. So, so yeah, progression is competing more coherently in the Premier League, qualifying for the Champions League. You do that, and the team style is developing as well, which I think we are seeing evidence of now. Um, then Lampard remains very much in control of his own destiny. If any of those things fall off the fall by the wayside, then he will start to in, endure the same issues that his predecessors did. I think this is where I have a little bit of a problem because um, obviously being able to spend two hundred million pounds plus on new players in the summer is a great luxury. Mm-hmm. With that though comes a little bit of a cultural challenge. Firstly, assimilating you know, almost half a new side into Premier League life um, and, you know, creating the necessary partnerships to be successful straight off the hoof. And also during a pre-season, which isn't normal, um, Kai Havertz arrived without uh, a proper pre-season, for instance. But also having built the sort of the base of a side off players who've been nurtured and grown inside the club's academy, um, for the most part, you then, you're challenging it by introducing an entirely different set of elements, which is, big money signings, big egos, potentially. That's not meant to be a criticism of anybody that's come in, but if you get bought for a lot of money, you are going to arrive with a little bit of a swagger. Isn't it? It just seems fairer to me that in this year one, there's an acceptance of the time lag, whereby we're investing in this, and for six months, maybe it's going to be a little bit disjointed. I mean, if he finishes fifth, sixth, with a you know a Liverpool, which who are still very good, a Manchester City who have spent a lot of money, um, Manchester United we're not sure of. Tottenham look a lot better than they were. It feels like, I, I, I understand the argument from a revenue stream's perspective, but it doesn't feel like failure at the moment. Top six is a, a kind of almost a false negative uh, under the circumstances, potentially. I don't think you get away with it. No. I, 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 no, I mean, no, not a chance. No, no way. It's it's it's, it's 200 million pounds you know, in, in a market where no one's spending any money. And they're not necessarily, you're right, they're not necessarily buying uh, players that, that are in the, at their peak. They're buying potential to a, to a large extent. Mate, Ziyech is obviously slightly older, I think he's 27. Um, and you could argue that he's hitting the, the peak of his form. Thiago Silva's very different in as much as... Feels like a dressing room signing. Absolutely, but know. what a, I mean, we're yeah. a hell of a hell of a signing just yeah. for a short-term basis. I mean, if you get a year out of him playing at the level he is at the moment, then you're laughing. And it also, that buys you more time to to find your your long-term replacements at centre-half and they might be younger younger players. Um, but, you know, your Verners and your Havertz, your Chilwells, they're joining a dressing room where they're actually a similar age to a lot of the guys that have come through the academy. And I think that will probably make it easier for those guys to accept them within the fold. Uh, and and to assimilate them into into the group, um, so I don't actually think there'll be that. I think if you if you're a young kid who's grown up at Chelsea's academy across the road, Cobham Cobham's training centre has a road that drives that goes straight down the middle. One side is the academy, one side is the first team building. It's almost it's a rite of passage that 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 journey across from one to the other. 
is when you make it or when you're being binned. I mean, I remember Nicholas Anelka had to park his car. Flora Maluda had to park his car in the, in the academy building because they weren't, they're being excluded from the first team. I remember the, the Sky Sports pictures of uh, Flora Maluda juggling a football by himself in some yeah. far-flung yeah. corner. And, and it's a massive sight. You can, you can lose yourself. I have lost myself in that sight. I mean, it's it, the pictures that go back all the way up to the M25 pretty much. But it's... That progression, those guys who have been steeped in that education of football at Chelsea from some from the age of eight or nine, they know that they're going to be facing huge competition for 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 places in the first team picture. They they know they expect that they've they've had they've watched the club sign rafts of twenty six to thirty year olds over the years, or maybe not thirty twenty six to twenty nine year olds over the years, and they know that they've it's it's a job. To, to hold down a position amongst that competition. So it's not a culture shock for them to see all these guys moving in. It, it just makes Ch- Chelsea more competitive. And, and given the congested nature of this season and the fact that you're going to have all these fixtures across all these competitions in a shorter length amount of time, it's the best time possible to have uh, what you could argue is a bloated squad where you've got competition in virtually every position in, in, in that team. Because... Players are going to be fatigued. Players are going to be mentally and physically fatigued. They're going to be risking injury. They're going to recognise that because the sports scientists at Chelsea are going to be stressing that to them. They're going to, they will willingly sit out the odd game here and there, which will give others a chance to, to, to play and keep, keep the whole group satisfied, I think. Um, so actually... I think Chelsea have been quite shrewd on it. It's played in that into their hands. I mean, nobody, nobody foresaw the pandemic, um, but that transfer ban, which admittedly became one window, but they didn't spend for two windows, meant that they saved all this money up, not least from the sale of Hazard, from the sale of uh, Morata, people like that. They had bucket loads of money to spend in the summer, and and it won't really reflect that poorly on their accounts in the years ahead either. It's they've they've been shrewd in the way that they've they've approached it all, and it's and it has, as we look at it now, it appears to be working in their favour. Let's finish by being speculative, because it's always seemed like Roman Abramovich has had a special relationship with the the the, the core of players that delivered Chelsea's first title, and Lampard is obviously front and centre of that. How in play is that dynamic going forward? Because if you if there was a situation where there was a slump in form. Uh, there was a finish outside the top four. There was a disaster season, a mid-table finish. I don't necessarily think that will happen, but is Lampard protected by any of this? Or is he... How ruthless are Chelsea prepared to be in this situation? Because you're not... They are the club of hiring and firing managers. They are not necessarily as uh, familiar with a situation of having to to slay a club legend potentially, which is what this would be. It's very similar to the situation Manchester United have with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Obviously, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is in a slightly different position and Frank Lampard is uh, a much bigger part of Chelsea's history. But how does that how does that change things going forward if it does at all with 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 Abramovich and with Marina Granovskaya? If it came to that, if it came to wielding the axe, I'm sure Chelsea would go back to the ruthlessness of old because that's how they have to operate. An elite level club, a business that that needs to be competing at at a certain level. If they felt that was going to be jeopardised, 
uh, and the decisions being made by the head coach weren't working, then yeah, they would they would act ruthlessly. I'm sure they they may change. They may they may insist that they have changed over the years, and and to a certain extent, I, I guess you can you can argue that they have to a to a point when things are threatened, when the progress of the club is threatened, they act. And it will be awkward if it comes to that with Frank Lampard because he is an icon um, at Stamford Bridge still. Um, so if, if they have to say goodbye to him, yeah, that'll be, that will be a difficult moment for, for all concerned. But, but Chelsea, Chelsea deep down are still Chelsea. And Abramovich, is, he may not be there, but he's, he's still overseeing all this. He has standards. He knows what he expects of his team. The investment that he's put in and he continues to put in um, demands results. So, if things stutter, and you know, at the moment it appears to be a progression, you know, everything that we're that's been asked of Lampard, he's providing. But if things stutter, yes, I'm sure they will react, um, and they they will be. <laughs> to be honest, there'll be a better prospect for an elite coach if if there was a job available there now compared to when Lampard took over, which, you know, you'd like to think that Lampard would be given the chance to see this through, to 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 turn this team and this club into what he wants them to be. And he's to do all three of those years that he pitched Absolutely, to his new yeah. players. If there, is, if there is this three-year plan, and it's not over now. I mean, we you look at the, the team, there's still deficiencies in that team. It's not the finished article. They still need a defensive midfielder. They, they, this, there's a reason he, they're continually linked with Declan Rice. Um, they still need a centre half that's going to occupy the, the Thiago Silva role in the in the future. I mean, he's having a wonderful effect on those around him at the moment in Kurt Zuma, and indeed the fullbacks. I mean, the development of Reese James, who's who's spoken glowingly of of the impact that Thiago Silva's had on his his career already. But he's a short term stopgap. He, he he's going to get a year, possibly two at the most, out of him, um, and so they need to replenish their stock of experienced leaders at centre half. Um, it's by no means the end of this journey. One summer splurge is not the end. It's 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 the beginning. As Lampard says, this is year one. This is year one. Let's see where we are in year two, in year three, and what Chelsea looked like then. And fingers crossed Lampard is given that chance to to see things through. But if it's faltering, if it's stuttering, then we all know the way it goes. Mm-hmm.